Gracious God, be with us today as we study Paul's letter to the Romans, and we pray that we would learn something new about ourselves and about you and about what it means to follow you in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul writes, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. For in the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Although everyone is a liar, let God be proved true as it is written so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. But if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say that God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my falsehood, God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not say, as some people slander us by saying that we say, let us do evil so good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths. In the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So I'm going to end there and do a little teaching on Romans 3, verses 1 through 20. So Paul begins, what advantage has the Jew? And he says, for in the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, the key word here is the word entrust, uh, meaning it was never meant for the Jews exclusively, right? If you entrust me with a letter and say, can you please give this letter to Sam, the letter entrusted to me, it's not my property, but rather it is to be given to someone else. And in the same way, part of what the people of Israel forgot was that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, not to benefit them alone, but rather in order to share that with the entire world. They were to be a light to the nations. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that from the very beginning, this project did not seem to be going well. They were not faithful. So Paul asks in verse three, what if some were unfaithful? Will their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? He then says, by no means. Now, it's really important to note that Paul is not saying that, you know, God gave Israel a chance, they failed, and so God resorted to plan B by sending his son. That's not what Paul is saying at all, but rather that Israel's faithlessness does not keep God from being faithful to God's promise 
through Israel. And of course, the whole point of Paul's letter to the Romans is that God's righteousness or God's covenant faithfulness is displayed in the true Israelite, the son of David, who was perfectly obedient and faithful and thus the vehicle through which God's salvation would reach the entire world. But as Paul says, let God be proved true. This is very important for Paul that God has kept God's word and that this is demonstrated in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. Um, I think it's worth noting in verse eight when Paul says, and why not say, as some people slander us by saying that we say, let us do evil so good may come. Paul will say something similar in Romans 6, where he is accused of saying, let us sin all the more so grace may abound. It's important to remember that Paul has never met the people in Rome, that Paul had quite the reputation, and that many slandered Paul and the gospel he preached, especially because of his stance on the law and where the law fell in terms of God's covenant with God's people. And as we read Romans, one of the things we discover is that all the law can really do is mirror back to us our own inability to keep it, right? The law can show us what God desires, but the law can't empower us to do that. And so part of what Paul is saying is that the more that you know, sin abounded in human beings, grace abounded all the more. And so some people would say to Paul, okay, so you're just saying it doesn't matter what we do, that the more we sin, the more grace will abound. And of course, Paul says, that's silly if you think that your condemnation is deserved. Now in verse nine, he asks the question, are we any better off, we being the Jews? Because remember, Paul has just said that there is an advantage to being Jewish, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So he asks the question, are we any better off? And remember the context here is that Jews and Gentiles have come together in one family as one body. So the question is, are Jews any better off? And Paul says, no, not at all, for all of us are under the power of sin. And so for Paul, sin is not an act, it's not a choice, it's not a violation of an individual command. All those things are really symptoms of this larger power that enslaves human beings. And we recall that earlier in chapter one, um, Paul had articulated humanity's proclivity to commit idolatry, to worship and serve the created thing rather than the creature. And for Paul, whenever human beings commit idolatry, what they're essentially doing is taking the power and the authority that God has given them um, as human beings, right? We see this in Psalm 8. We're made a little lower than the angels. We see it in the Garden of Eden that we are to uh, till and keep the garden. So we have this power but idolatry is when we take that power and we hand it over to something else, to some alien power, which then overpowers us. And so sin for Paul is a power. It is something that enslaves us, the fruit of which is that none of us are righteous. There is no one who is righteous, not even one, Paul says in verse 10. 
But of course, here Paul is quoting Psalm 143:2, which says, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. And so Paul is not doing theological innovation here. What he's essentially doing is using Israel's scriptures to make his point, right? The fact that no one is righteous is clearly stated in what we would call the Old Testament or Paul's Bible. So he's really just bringing that back into focus to level the playing field and to say that we're all in need of rescue from the outside. And then, of course, there's that verse um, 12 that says, there's no one who shows kindness. There is not even one, not even one. Now, it's very subtle, but I think this is an allusion to Abraham in the book of Genesis pleading for Sodom. And if you remember that story, God has determined to punish Sodom for their sins, but Abram intercedes and says, Lord, if there are 50 righteous to be found, will you spare it for the sake of the 50? And God says, yes, I'll spare it for the sake of the 50. And so Abram keeps bargaining. Will you spare it for the sake of the 40, for the 30, for the 20? Will you spare it for the sake of the 10? And God says, yes, if I find 10 righteous there, I will spare it for the sake of the 10. Now, Abraham doesn't keep going, but really the force of the passage is that had Abraham asked, will you spare the city if only one righteous person is found that God would have said yes. But of course, here we're reminded there is no one who shows kindness. There is no one who is righteous. There is not even one. And the reason that's important is because part of what Paul is doing is reminding us that there actually is one, um, not a mere mortal like you and I, but rather the son of David, right? He will be the faithful Israelite, the one through whom um, God's covenant justice will be displayed, the one who will be fully obedient, even to the point of dying on a cross. And so when Paul says there is not even one, he's talking about humanity apart from Jesus. But of course, there is one who is righteous that we'll get to later uh, who is the centerpiece of Paul's gospel, Jesus, the Messiah. Now, why does Paul do this? Is Paul trying to be negative or is he trying to be mean? No. The reason that Paul is leveling the playing field is to get to verse 19, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's really the point, right? Paul wants to put all of us on the same level of needing to be rescued so that he can then articulate the power of the gospel, which is that we have been rescued through Jesus, the Messiah. Now, verse 20, Paul says, no human being will be justified in God's sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is so, so important in Pauline thought that the law is not a vehicle through which we earn our own righteousness. It is not something that we do in order to make ourselves acceptable to God. In fact, remember the law was given after God saved the people from Egyptian slavery. The people were not given the law, you know, kept it. And then God said, well done, now I'll save you. Rather, God saved the people of Israel then gave them the law as a gift. And so what Paul is saying here is not that the law is bad. In fact, 
later on, he will affirm his commitment to God's law, although he will reinterpret slightly as keeping that law from the heart. But what Paul is saying here is that all the law can really do, practically speaking, is mirror back to us our own inability to keep it, mirror back to us our own sinfulness, and mirror back to us our need for rescue. And that's going to be really, really important because in just a moment, Paul will further articulate where that rescue will come from. Okay, now let's pick up with verse 21. Paul writes, But now, irrespective of law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded by what law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith, apart from works prescribed by the law? Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. All right. Now, Romans 3, 21 through 31 is so dense, and there is a lot packed in there. And so I'm going to do my best just to kind of bring out some of the key points, but we could spend really 10 classes on this paragraph alone. So we start with Paul saying, irrespective of the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed. Basically, for Paul, the righteousness means the covenant faithfulness of God, um, that God's faithfulness to God's covenant to bless the entire world, to save the entire world through Israel, that it has been disclosed apart from the law, that the law is not the primary thing that discloses God's faithfulness to God's covenant. And of course, that this is attested by the law and the prophets. This is part of Christian belief and part of Paul's theology that the law and the prophets all point to Jesus, the Messiah. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is worth noting that the phrase through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe could also be translated through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so whenever you see faith in Christ, uh, and any of Paul's letters, please know that can also be translated faithfulness of Christ. Now, which translation is better? I think they're both pretty darn good because both of them are at the heart of Pauline theology. We are saved through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, but in order to benefit and to um, tap into that 
salvation we've received for Paul, faith and belief is absolutely central. Um, and then Paul says there is no distinction, no distinction, of course, being between Jew and Gentile. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, whenever Paul says that we fall short of the glory of God, I think Paul means the word glory in two different senses. On the one hand, there's the glory, right? The weight, the heaviness, the splendor of God's presence, the magnificent of who God is, that we fall short of that glory. But remember, there is also the glory of being a human being made in God's image. We see this in the garden where Adam and Eve are given dominion over the creation. They are meant to exercise a wisdom and a rule over creation as God's image bears. God entrusted them with that glory. In a similar way, in Psalm 8, we're told that human beings are made just a little lower than the angels that were crowned with glory. And so, what sin has done, the power of sin, is essentially debased our humanity. It's robbed us of our original glory. And the reason that's important, right, because if glory is tied to dominion, not domination, but dominion, a wise rule, a sharing and covenantal partnership with God, later on, when Paul talks about how we will exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, that restoration of dominion is a restoration of our original glory, right? But right now we fall short of that glory and Paul is pointing that out. But verse 24, we're now justified by God's grace as a gift. Now, this word justification is a legal term. It really means that we are declared to be in the right. And so back in the day, if two people went to court, there was a plaintiff and a defendant and the judge would make a verdict that one of them was in the right. And so essentially what Paul is doing is saying that through our association with Jesus, the Messiah, through our faith, that God has declared us to be in the right in the present moment. And this present verdict will be ratified in the future. It is a guarantee, Paul says, at a different point in this letter. And of course, this comes by his grace as a gift. Um, grace, gift, this is central to the power of the gospel that Paul is articulating. And personally, it is at the very heart of my own theological disposition. It's all about grace. It's all about the gift of God. Um, we're then told that God put Jesus forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood. Now, really neat word study. That Greek word translated atonement, uh, hilasterion, I didn't pronounce that correctly, but uh, it is the Greek word for mercy seat in the Old Testament, uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. You might recall that the mercy seat was associated with the Day of Atonement. Um, this is where God would offer mercy and forgiveness to God's people in the temple. And basically what Paul is doing is stretching his language and stretching his metaphors to say, Jesus is that mercy seat. He is where mercy and forgiveness come to all of God's people, to Jew and Gentile alike, uh, and that this is effective through faith. And then Paul says, God did this to show his righteousness. Again, uh, best translation of that is covenant faithfulness. God made a promise to Abraham to bless the entire world through his seed. And of course, the seed being referenced, the, the child of Abraham being referenced here 
is the one whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement. Uh, it is Jesus himself who went to the cross. And so God is displaying God's, um, God's uh, ability to be true to his word in and through Jesus Christ. That's kind of the best meaning, I think, of um, showing his righteousness. God keeps his promise. Um, verse 27, Paul asks, okay, if this is true, what becomes of boasting? And he says, it is excluded. And so I think this is a really important practical point, uh, because as human beings, we love to boast. We love to elevate ourselves over others. In fact, Jesus tells this wonderful parable, and I think it's Luke chapter 18, where two men go up to the temple to pray. Uh, one man is a, um, Pharisee. And one man is a tax collector, and the tax collector just sits there beating his breast, asking for mercy. But the Pharisee says, you know, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I pray twice a week. I tithe. I do this, that, and the other. And above all, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that guy, right, pointing to the tax collector. In other words, uh, this Pharisee comes into the temple and he boasts, he boasts because he believes that his justification comes from something other than grace, something other than faith, something other from mercy. And so part of what Paul is saying is that uh, to the extent that we understand this gospel, that boasting and self-righteousness in any shape or form is completely excluded. And so a practical implication here is that if you think of self-righteousness in your own life, if you think about those places in your life where you thank God that you're not like other people, um, Paul would not see this so much as a problem as he would a symptom, a symptom of forgetting that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law, as he says in verse 28. Uh, verse 29, Paul asks, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles only? Or is he not the God of the Gentiles also? And then Paul says, yes, uh, that God is God of the Gentiles also, since God is one. And when Paul says God is one in verse 30, he is quoting the Shema. Uh, Hear, O Lord, the God of Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Paul is taking the fundamental command of Judaism, the fundamental command of the Israelite scriptures in order to say that God is not just God of the Jews, but God of the Gentiles also. And it's really important just to name that Paul is not doing theological innovation, but calling the people of Israel back to their own scriptures, where the promise was always for the world, and that what God did for Israel, God always intended to do through Israel for the benefit of the entire creation. Final point, verse 31, with all this talk about the law and how it cannot save us and how it is not the primary means through which the righteousness of God is revealed and how all it can do is mirror back to us our own sin, um, it would be natural to conclude that Paul has no use for the law. But in verse 31, he asks the question, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, Paul's going to flesh this out in later chapters, but suffice it to say for now, when Paul talks about upholding the law, 
He means we uphold the law of God from the heart as a renewed people. Because part of what Paul will articulate in the coming chapters is how the Spirit creates in those who trust in Jesus a new humanity who can keep God's law from the heart, not as a way of earning righteousness, not as a way of pleasing God, but rather as a celebration uh, of what binds us together as the church, which is that we have been justified by God's grace as a gift. But we will get to that in later weeks.